If you want to learn how to gain insights you can act on and solve business problems with data, all while building a data-driven culture at your organization, sign up for Pragmatic Institute's new course, Data Science for Business Leaders. Find out more at pragmaticinstitute.com data. Welcome to Data Chats, a podcast by Pragmatic Institute and the Data Incubator, where we tackle data topics and trends with experts, industry leaders, instructors, and alumni. I'm Chris Richardson, your host, and today I'm thrilled to be speaking with Jose Barenguez, who is an associate professor at the United Arab Emirates University. He is also the author of Data Viz, Sketch Thinking, and many other great works I highly recommend. Uh, Jose, thank you so much for speaking to me today. Thanks for having me, Chris. I'm thrilled to get started talking about data visualization. It's something I'm uh, passionate about and, and working on right now for Pragmatic in the data incubator. Um, maybe you can give us a little bit about your background and how you got into this field and what it is that you do, um, if you want to give us a, a brief history. So I, um, I went to Japan when I was young to do a PhD in robotics. Which I want to hear definitely more about. It's such a fascinating story. Then I spent uh, one year at CERN in Geneva in the particle accelerator. Um, then I went to Barcelona. I started uh, two startups. This was in 2007-8. Uh, one was something like Instagram, before Instagram. That didn't work out. And, and the other was a photo, photo wedding related service. After that... I was broke, I had no money, so I called my fellow colleagues in Japan and I asked them for a job and they gave me a job in a place called Fukushima, which exploded, if you remember. <laughs> but not your <laughs> fault. In, 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 yes. After that, uh, there was a job here in United Arab Emirates in Abu Dhabi at UAE University and um, they were very generous to offer it and I took it. Um, one of the things that happened when I arrived here is they asked me to develop new courses. One of them was design thinking, um, which remember a few years ago, it was a big wave of design thinking. So that, that course became very popular. We developed a small textbook for it because there were no textbooks. There still are no very good textbooks about design thinking. Mm, yeah. And three, four years ago, again, the university asked me to develop Jose, you have to develop a data visualization course. And the same situation, there, were, there are not very good data visualization textbooks that are catered to computer scientists. Mm -hmm. uh, most data visualization available books come from social sciences. And so I thought, wow, yeah, so we developed this uh, small book. And from there, um, yeah, the book became quite popular. And then another thing that happened was we decided to translate it to Spanish as an afterthought. Mm. And now the Spanish version sells way more than the English version, even though the market is three, four times smaller. Yeah, and, and so, so you've done a lot. I mean, you've done a lot in so many different ways, and it's it. I think it comes together, that sort of interdisciplinary background. How has that helped shape the way that you understand and think about a data and visualization? Yes, the... The problem with data visualization that we have is that companies today, they hired so many data scientists from computer science. And, and 
a, a problem I, I hear often is that, oh my God, Jose, we got your book here in the HR department and you need to come here and help us give a training because our CEO, when he received a presentation from the data scientists, they don't speak the same language. And I said, yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. Uh, so yeah, I think there's a big niche and market opportunity to help um, computer science background people to, to storytell data. And actually, if you think about it, storytelling the data and creating knowledge from data is a high added value activity. So I totally recommend get you this skill in your in your uh, tool set. Um, mm -hmm. Even companies like McKinsey, um, they, they, it's one of the skills they, they demand now. So. Yeah, and you make the point that a lot of people can go through a whole uh, data science background, they can graduate and never take any formal training or, or really formally learn anything as part of the curriculum on visualization and storytelling. Is that what the problem is that they're that they're not getting training, or why do we get so many you know brilliant people presenting such horrible looking graphs or difficult to understand presentations? Exactly what you say. It's because we never taught them how to storytell data uh, or how to the basics of graphic design or how not to overload data or or basic principles like hey, if you want to influence people with your chart. Uh, and it's uh, super complex. Um, it's not going to accomplish the the goal that you had in mind. And people say, "Oh, yeah, why are you doing this chart? Is it for yourself to understand the problem, or is it to convince uh, someone?" So these are three very different goals. Mm -hmm. and, and yeah, yeah. Well, and so maybe we can get into some details. What are what are some of the key mistakes that you see? I mean, you already mentioned that often there there's a temptation to just put all the data in which is a big problem what what are some of the key mistakes that you would you know try to correct as soon as possible when if you were teaching well you do teach this so what are some of the key things that you tackle first the number one problem we have is the tool we use uh, most of the charts we see today done with microsoft excel it is a great tool the problem is the guy who made this tool, Bill Gates, never took the design course in his life or a storytelling course. It's a brilliant mind, but he don't get it. And as a result, Microsoft Excel, it's very hard to make a chart that has an okay palette of colors or mm. that is not overloaded with information or that is easy to tweak. If you try to make, if you make a chart in Excel and then you try to set all the settings correctly so you have a nice clean not overloaded chart with the uh, okay colors that don't disrupt your story it's very hard you have to click on so many boxes so, so it's very hard to do mm -hmm. and very complex and 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 so that's one of the problems so yeah excel the tool yeah yeah and so but it, let's say you know we could we could do some magic and everyone stops using excel at least for presentations and then they switch into something like, I don't know, Tableau or what have you, hmm. would the problem go away? Uh, I think Tableau has done a much better job at, at choosing at least nicer colors and cleaner interfaces. Mm -hmm. has done a great job and it has taken the world by storm. And the proof is that all the consulting companies, what they do is they, they make their chart in Tableau, they screenshot it and they use it in their PowerPoint presentations. That tells you something. Hmm. You can do, you can achieve what you, what Tableau has achieved 
on Excel. It just takes one hour of clicking on things. Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah. So definitely, you know, the tool set makes a difference. There's, a, there's another interesting story. Uh, one of our co-authors in, in the book, uh, Data Visualization, Maribeth Sandel, she was the Bloomberg Bureau Chief in London for many years. She's the one that talked about bias in data as a journalist. And, and I asked her, um, what tool do you use at Bloomberg to do make, make the charts? And she said, we, we use Illustrator, Adobe Illustrator. I said, what? <laughs> How is that? Is that? Oh, because it takes too much time on Excel to, 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 to get the chart with the colors you want. So at the end, we just give the Excel chart to the, to the designer and say, do, do this nicely. And all the charts you see at Bloomberg Business Week magazine, they're done with Illustrator. Yeah, so not even a, a data tool per se. No, the first done with a data tool, then you have the chart, and then it's so hard to tweak it. At the end, it's easier to do this uh, by hand or with Illustrator. Yeah, fascinating. Yeah, that is really interesting. So, yeah, I mean, obviously, uh, my next question is, if you find the right tools or, you know, you think more about the tools, what what other elements need to change so that you start making really impactful, concise arguments or, or stories even? I mean... That's obviously part of it too, right? What, what else do you need to do other than improve the, the visualization itself? There's always thinking about why are you doing the chart? Think about the purpose, not only in data visualization, in your life, in your work. That's the one. If you don't know what do you want to accomplish with this chart, who's going to read the chart, the audience, targeting, then there's no point. Like mm -hmm. stop immediately what you're doing, right? So that's one thing. There's another thing. When we started researching this topic, I learned that there's a job called storyteller. There are storyteller consulting consultants. They get paid to advise companies about the narrative and the storytelling that they can use. And, and then I realized there's the three elements in every story you tell. There's the, the story itself, mm -hmm. there is the narrative, and then there's the data. And, and the relationship with these three elements, you can, you can see... It very quick, very very easily. In, for example, the fable read the the children's book, the Red Riding Hood. Mm -hmm. It's like the story is the book, the the data inside this little tale is all the details. And what's the the job of the of having the data there? It's to lend credibility to the story. Hmm. And what's the narrative? The narrative is the reason you tell the story to the kids. And in this case, the narrative of this book, this tale, is don't talk to strangers. And, and why do we create this tale when we could go to a five-year-old and, and tell them don't talk to strangers? Mm -hmm. It's because a five-year-old will not remember, will remember a tale, but they will not remember an adult telling them, right? So that's the whole thing. So think of a child as the same thing, like exactly the same thing about the narrative as what do you want to say and convince of. Think of the story as the chart and what you're going to say about the chart and how you're going to use it. And then think of the data as the, the data that the chart is showing, right? So that, that's very interesting. Then there's this other thing called the DKIW pyramid. I don't know if you hear about it. It's mm -hmm. fascinating. It tells you the, the four classes of information that you have. You have basically, at a low level, you have data and then you have um, I think it's knowledge, right? Information, and, right? Oh, information. Yeah. And then you have knowledge, and then you yeah. have wisdom, right? Yeah. So 
and and it's a refine it's a refining of the data. The data is, data is everywhere. How do you transform data into information? By summarizing the data, right? By making charts or histograms, stuff like that. And how do you convert this information into knowledge? What is knowledge? It's the ability to know or to relate uh, your new information uh, to relate it to put it in relation to other things that you know, right? Other bodies of knowledge. And if you look at Einstein, how he got his Nobel prizes, Einstein, he didn't do any experimental experiment. He he didn't get any new data. He just took data from other people and says, oh, this this and doesn't matter. No, the the orbit of Mercury around the sun has an error. Oh wow, what does it mean? Mm-hmm. And then he came up with this uh, relativity, special relativity thing. He just he just took little little formulas that all right all the things were there. He just put the puzzle together. That is an example of knowledge creation. That's fascinating. Yeah. And then what is wisdom? So wisdom is to know when to say things, not how or or what. It's when. Super interesting. So this 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 finally is really interesting. It's so unknown. It's like I found it buried in the Wikipedia, and and who did this? Pyramid, it's anonymous. We don't know who, the, who came up with this idea. Yeah. So that was also very fascinating. Yeah, for sure. I found it really fascinating. Also, you, I mean, you do a few things when you introduce this. One is you ask people to, to place these things in order, so to get people thinking about it, which I really love throughout the book, right? You have the exercises. But you also mention, or at least you emphasize, that data is so common, like it's so, so prevalent everywhere, that data in and of itself is not very valuable, even though we all talk about data being the new gold or oil, right? It's like, it's, it's the most valuable thing, but it's not. What's valuable is the knowledge and even better, the wisdom that takes the data and refines it and uses it in, in important ways or, or, you know, ideally like Einstein would use it, right? But that is also the challenge because we can get a lot of people who can play with data, even though, you know, we still lack enough data scientists and data engineers and all the related people, but the people who really do the knowledge, who do the conversion part, are still hard to find. How have you how have you found that you can tell the difference or maybe push people in the right direction from stepping away from or at least not emphasizing the data, which is the lowest level of this pyramid, and trying to get closer to the wisdom? I mean, you, you do it sort of in the book, but I'm curious to how do you how do you push people in that direction or or encourage them to think about moving in that direction? Yes. So, as we said before, to transform information into knowledge, what do you need? You need to put your newfound data into in relation to connect, to link, because then it's when it becomes useful. For example, example, typical example, uh, with my students. No, um, I, we have a course about agile. We do this workshop about lean UX. They have to code an app, design an app in three four hours about a hypothetical business, right? And then I have to, they have to say, how are you going to measure success? Right? And they, they say, yeah, well, I will check how many downloads we have in the app, or I will check the comments in the app. I say, right, okay. And then I ask, have you heard about this thing called Net Promoter Score? This uh, KPI used in everybody, you, know? you, yeah, yeah. you take the, the, bot, the top 20% of your fans of your app and you subtract the bottom 60% of your not fans or not so much fans. Yeah, yeah. And then you have a number that can be positive or negative. Coca-Cola has a net promoter score of 59, I think. Tesla also very high. 
and other companies like banks have a very negative, even negative, right? The net promoter score is very interesting because if it's positive, it means you have organic growth. The people talk good about you. You don't need to spend a lot of an, on advertisement. And if you spend money on advertisement, it, it's effective because the mm -hmm. channel is low. But if the net promoter score is negative, it doesn't matter how much money you spend on advertisement. It's better to spend the money on fixing the product, right? So, right, if you're a student, young, and you don't know the net promoter score, it's very hard for you to use that data of how many people download and the ratings into actionable things. So for young people, uh, what I tell them is just read and ask questions and learn as much as you can about all the fields, marketing, sales, logistics, all this stuff. That is the only way. Yeah. Well, and I want to, yeah, I want to ask you more about learning about other fields because maybe you can say a little bit more about your background. I mean, you know, it's, it's as international a background as I've ever met, I think of somebody I've interviewed here, especially. And it, it is also quite diverse in, it seems in what you've studied and what you've learned through that experience. So can you say a little bit of, can you explain a little bit for people who, who don't know you about your um, trajectory and also maybe how, you, how that has helped you bring together potentially disparate pieces of knowledge from different fields. Absolutely. So I studied uh, electrical engineering in Barcelona. And then I worked for a few months in Germany as a consultant, working with Java for banks. Then I worked in Switzerland uh, in a packaging company. And then I got fired from this job in Switzerland. And... Um, I said, wow, working is not for me. And there was this, this, this uh, the Japanese government offered these scholar, full paid scholarships to, to study in Japan. And I applied and, uh, and they, they gave it to me. So I went to Japan, went to Tokyo and um, st started uh, a master's in robotics. And then they, they said, imagine Tokyo, you're 25 years old, it's fabulous. Yeah. And it's fabulous because it's like, it's like the Matrix. It's like, or, or we used to say, this is the Matrix. <laughs> <laughs> and then they, they said, do you want to do a PhD here? I said, yes. And then I ended up doing a PhD in bio-inspired robotics, which is about taking inspiration from nature to hmm. solve engineering problems related to design thinking. At that time, I didn't know design thinking at all or, or even things that we take for granted today, like agile methodology were not even invented. This is... The iPhone didn't exist yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, that far away. So that, that was the time. Uh, after that, um, as I said, I, I, I went to work in, in CERN, in the particle accelerator, for one year. I, I don't know if you've seen the Big Bang Theory. Yeah, yeah. So just multiply that by, by 10. That's that, what it was that's, like as an accurate like. representation. But, but I never met brightest people in my life. Like I, you would speak to someone and said, and then suddenly realize, oh my God, these guys are on a higher level. Yeah. And I would tell them, why, why don't you start a company or a startup or something? And they said, no, I'm, I'm just interested in this particle physics. And I said, wow, what, what a waste of talent. After one year, he said, this is not for me. I'm just going back to Barcelona. And then uh, a friend there convinced me to, to start these, these companies. 2008, 2008, 2009. Yeah. Okay. And what was it like to have these different, uh, what, what, how did different groups, because these are already quite disparate groups, right? Culturally, but also in terms of what they're studying. How did they present things and what did you learn? Maybe mistakes even, you know, like it's a, such an interesting thing to compare, I think. 
as you know, Japanese people, I, I learned Japanese, they, their alphabet is visual. Mm-hmm. And so that means when they process text, they, they use different parts of the brain that we don't use. We're phonetic. And they, but they, when a Japanese person reads a newspaper, he can watch it as if, if it was pictures and get the sense of the key pictograms there. Mm. We cannot do that. We have to skip words quickly. So that's, that's already using a different part of the brain. And when they do MRIs of Chinese, Japanese people reading something or listening to something compared to Europeans, you can see different parts of the brain activating. That's fascinating. Mm-hmm. Right? Then another thing which shocked me was that um, because Japanese is so hard, it's so homophonic, it's, it has many words that sound the same, mm-hmm. um, it's very hard to have a technical conversation just by speaking. And so they rely a lot on PowerPoint all the time. Otherwise, you cannot get your message across and to display the keywords that the person is saying. And, and so you would see also a lot of pictures and diagrams. Even if you would go to the Japanese government, they would have instructions. They would give you instructions on how to apply for a visa, for example. And there would be always a diagram with arrows, like first do this, first do that, which in Europe would be childish and say, no, just one, two, three bullet points. Mm-hmm. In Japan, you have diagrams with pictures and stuff like that. They have no qualms whatsoever to, to use pictures. And why is that? It's because they're already using pictures. And it's way more accepted to use pictures in business presentations and in official documents. It's, it's, that was the first thing I realized. I said, wow, they're not ashamed. Like, and, and, and then you realize in Europe, there's like a taboo to, mm-hmm. to use visual support in presentation. It's, it's like we are in a dictatorship of words that if you use a picture in a legal document or something, you're not like serious. And it's mm-hmm. like, oh, it is very interesting. And is that, does that mean that the presentations were in like generally better in Japanese presentations as opposed to Europeans or were it there, is, were there it, things that maybe other companies were doing differently that you noticed or, or groups? I, I, I think anything you do visual is always better, right? Like it's so much easier to get the message across some, some less misunderstandings. Many complex topics here, like vaccines, like in the news, for example, in Japan, they use diagrams. Even you would see the newscaster with a cardboard diagram on screen. This is what happens if you don't take the vaccine. You will die 10% more often, whatever it is. In Europe, you never will see that. It's like there's this, oh, oh, wait, wait a second, a chart. That's a, no. But they, they have no qualms to use charts to explain a complex topic taxes whatever they use a chart yes yeah but what about the charts though i'm curious about that because you know like we do live it seems in the age of of powerpoint despite you know whatever people feel about that where we often i feel like are are bombarded if you're working in a in a technical field especially with mm-hmm. bar charts maybe pie charts these these excel staples right would those be different or would you see other opportunities that maybe maybe some people are adopting? Like you've already mentioned Tableau taking over in some realms, I think in more for, forward thinking design areas. But even, even in a case where you're using, like those are visuals, but they're not necessarily going to be represented in the same way. So I'm wondering if you, if you see better techniques for something where you could easily use a bar chart or pie chart. Are there ways that you, you, you have seen people either do that more effectively or replace it. The typical, 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 typical mistake 
I see is to overuse of bar of, of pie charts. And I get it because we humans love round shapes. And if you ask a kid, actually, when I was prototyping the book, I asked kids mm. of my colleagues, hey, which, which chart do you like more, the bar chart or the pie chart? And they always choose the pie chart. Why? Because round things are more harmonious. But the problem with this um, pie chart is that um, it has a, it's, it's used in many places where it shouldn't be used. Um, and the problem with the, the pie chart is that it's, it's a win-lose narrative or a scarcity narrative. It's a metaphor for a pie. We all know, maybe young people, they never been hungry in their lives, but it has this narrative of how much pie do we have, right? And yeah, yeah. fight for a piece of the pie. So, for example, if you are promoting or want to talk about gender equality and you want subconsciously or consciously to promote a scarcity narrative mm-hmm. in your audience, yeah, use a pie chart. But if you want to promote uh, an, a more win-win, like, hey, if if uh, women get equal, more equal to men or whatever measure you want to, to measure, then don't use a pie chart that, that, that subconsciously is on the scarcity narrative. Use, use a different chart. Use a stack bar or, or use a horizontal stack bar, which is less, less problematic in that aspect. People don't think about the charts. And, 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 and so when they go to Excel, they're already so overloaded with information and problems. They just choose the pie chart. Yeah. And there you go. Another problem with the pie chart is that it has angular slices and so if you take a, char- a pie chart and you rotate it a bit and then you show it, the perception perception is completely different. Like the piece of the pie that is upstairs or downstairs, that affects how you perceive things. Yeah. And, and this is terrible. It's a terrible chart. Yeah. I found it so interesting that certain elements that you point out, like like gravity. Can you say a little bit about how gravity works in Gravity charts? is another one, right? Like um, typical MBA school chart. What is it? y-axis measure of success x-axis your independent variable could be anything right and where are the good things happening happen to the right right like i kawasaki says that right yeah nice high and to the right good and so when you see this kind of scatter plot you expect to see the good things happening or you subliminally subliminally expect that we want to go up and to the right very interesting now you go to the new york times you watch these covid charts Two years ago, what do they have? This kind of chart. Oh, and people think, yeah, the more deaths we have, the better. Some <laughs> people will think that. <laughs> and there are scientific experiments where you measure how good a chart is to convey information and how mm-hmm. long it takes people to get the chart. Yeah. And they do these kind of experiments. They change the axis and see, okay, how long does it take people to, to realize that? Fine. So that's that's one of the many problems that we have with with the chart, not thinking about the charts. Then you have the gravity. Gravity is a very, very powerful metaphor. Usually things that are up are elite, scars, or good, and things that are down are negative. So the same with the same example with the COVID chart. Yeah. So people think that high is better most of the time. And so I, I told the New York Times, you should make invert the chart and plot the deaths. And That's say, true, okay, yeah. Deaths. Yeah, but okay, yeah, we're which, yeah. So it changes, it changes the narrative. So these things affect in many ways. So if you're in sales, you definitely want to check that because 
super powerful. Yeah, yeah. And a lot of these, what as you said, they're interesting because they come with probably unconscious for most people, narratives. Like the pie is a scarcity narrative. So even if you're not thinking in any way of it, you are you are presenting, whether you know it or not, a scarcity narrative. Are there other kinds of narratives that are inherent? Yeah. Uh, the other problem we have is with color traits. Mm-hmm. Colors loaded with symbolism. There are books just about color psychology. Yeah. And 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 a typical mistake we do is to use too many colors in one chart. I tell my students, use black. And if you must, choose one accent color to highlight one thing in your chart. That's it. Mm-hmm. And if you're going to use one more pixel of a different color, and you cannot justify why are you using that color with a good explanation, I give you a zero. <laughs> because... Because overloading a chart with no reason, that's, that goes against you. So yeah. So yeah, then you have the other problem of different colors mean different things in different countries, like uh, yellow means something sexual in China for some historical reasons. So if you use yellow in China, presentation, be careful. Uh, green has different connotations in different countries. Blue, the same. So yeah. Yeah. And I, I think, I mean, what you just said is interesting that Um, you know, you would give a student a zero if they do that, and that'll definitely make them consider their choices. But I don't think, yeah, in many cases, we don't get that kind of experience. If you are a data scientist who then gets a a job working for an organization, the CEO may say, I don't like this chart, but they won't get a, you know, they won't say, explain your color choice. They'll just be a sort of, I don't know, unconscious, this is not doing it for me. I mean, you mentioned earlier that you've been asked to come and talk to people and go to organizations because there's this disconnect and they're speaking different languages, which is something I'm really interested in, the language of the data scientist and the language of somebody like a product marketer or manager or CEO. Yeah, even if they're, you know, they're both speaking English or whatever, they are definitely coming from different worlds. How if, you know, short of obviously the great idea of inviting you over to the organization to solve this, how can some organizations take a step forward, maybe find some either, if not common ground, then at least a way to discuss these things? So this is what happened in the last four years, like big data explosion. Everybody realized, oh my God, you can make money with data. Companies start hiring data engineers, data scientists, and they want to organize the data. And these employees are great. And they have already a hell of a job just organizing the data and mm-hmm. keeping the data and not losing the data and data privacy and all the stuff. That's already a very high job. On top of that, the management expects them to create stories from the data, to create value when they're never been given the tools or the background to do, to do so. So the mistake from management is to think that creating information from data is easy. Yeah, it's easy. You can create lots of dashboards. There are many software add-ons that do that mm-hmm. but creating inform- knowledge from information that's not that easy and you, you have to hire people and at least train them if you want them to do a good job you cannot expect somebody that does not have an intimate knowledge of the business model to create knowledge for you if how they're going to do that if they don't know the business model it's impossible and so that that's the thing i tell management yeah and if there, if, I mean, if there are a few things, a few pieces of wisdom that you would hope that, or I guess that you would share 
short of going and getting an MFA or something, which would be great, you know, if people had time to really study this stuff, but what would be some of the key points? You've already, you know, you've, you mentioned some great points about ways people can think about presenting in more effective ways. What would be some of your top suggestions for people who want to improve? Like today, um, a lot of things happen online. If you want to get hired for a good job, for example, be online. There are many data, data visualization contests, for example. There is uh, Kaggle, for example, organizes a data storytelling competition every year on their survey. Uh, Tableau organizes this iron database mm-hmm. on Twitter. And you can learn so much. And when you will apply for a job, they will look at those things. Hey, what's your, what charts did you do on Kaggle? Or what charts have you published on Twitter with uh, Tableau? Which has a very good sharing system, right? Mm-hmm. That, to build resume and portfolio, it's more important than you learn so much about what's going on knowing tableau for example today almost can get you hired it's like and in very interesting positions because from data visualization you can you're close to management so if you are good at showing knowledge <laughs> they're gonna they're gonna keep you yeah and what should what should a manager think about like would you recommend you know, on the flip side would you recommend management or people who are making hiring decisions look at tableau and or uh, the, the competitions or, or Kaggle, where, like, what, what questions might the people on the other side, on the receiving end of these presentations, be asking to make sure that they're fostering that kind of environment? What I tell managers is that when you, if you're going to hire, first, if you're going to hire, hire slow, fire fast, hmm. as they say. And, and second, do a practical test of the person you want to hire. Don't look at the resume so much. This is a practical test. Okay, here's this data. What can you do with it? Can you analyze it and show me some charts? That's very good. And then curious mind. To create knowledge, as we said, you need to to connect the data that you have in the company in this silo to other departments. And it's very important to have a person that can talk to different parts of the organization without creating friction, right? That's not easy. Yeah, uh, but that's the only way to create knowledge, powerful knowledge. It's much like design thinking, but applied to data. So these yeah. three things. I think that, yeah, that's excellent. And if people wanted to, uh, my la- I mean, I would love to talk to you for a long time. You have so much to say, and I have so many questions. I'm sure I could continue for a long time, but I know we need to wrap it up. If you were to give advice for people to make two changes tomorrow so that they could start on this journey or, or at least think about things differently, what advice would you have for people? Maybe, I mean, maybe it's different advice, but we have the people who are creating the data, the charts, the, the visualizations in one, in one case, but we also have the people receiving, looking at, getting the information from the presentations. Are there things that they could do tomorrow to improve, whether they're on one side of the table or the other. Yes. For the people creating charts, follow the Tableau community on Twitter. You will learn about competitions, free resources, and so on. For the people looking at charts, increase your critical thinking about the charts, especially about biases, and try to think, how the, the person who made the chart might be trying to influence your thinking through graphical tricks and so on. So in 
reading a bit about biases for data visualization, super interesting. I really appreciate that. That's so much to walk away with. And I don't think anyone listening to this and definitely no one having read your book will be looking at data in the same way afterwards. And Jose, I, I thank you very much for you for sharing your thoughts today with me. Thank you, Chris. I have a gift for your audience. If you send me an email, I will send you a free electronic PDF of this book. So. Excellent. We will put that, we will share that in the notes. Be careful. You, you're going to get a lot of emails. How can people follow you or where would you suggest they look, by the way? Uh, you just can Google me online on LinkedIn. I spend most of my time and then you can just send me an email at jsc at ieee.org. And if you put in the subject line data bees in capital letters, you will get a, a reply with a link to a PDF and a newsletter that we have on data visualization. Excellent. Well, yeah, I can't think of any reason not to do that. Um, I appreciate that. And I know the listeners will appreciate that too. So Jose, thank you so much again. Thank you, Chris.